Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today we're going to address a very sensitive topic, and I just want to put out a content warning that if thinking about your pet's last days or end-of-life care is something that you're not quite ready to talk about or listen to the topic, you know, maybe wait on this episode. Yet it is a very important topic for those of you who have senior dogs. It's something to consider about how to know when a dog's quality of life is still thriving and they're doing well and how to know when a pet's quality of life is diminishing enough that it's time to consider last day's planning. As I spoke with the veterinarian, I was surprised at how emotional I got at times when she was talking about this topic. So I'm just giving you a warning. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to have strong feelings as you listen. I would expect that anybody who's lost a dog recently is going to be triggered with some sadness and difficult emotions. And if you have a senior dog, this also might bring up some difficult emotions. But these are important, though tough, topics to think about. So I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about this on the Doodle Kisses podcast. And I hope you are able to gain a better understanding if you are thinking about end-of-life care for your dog. And I want to say enjoy this episode, (laughs) but it's not really a fun topic, but hope you gain something useful. I'm here with Dr. Alice Villalobos. She is a veterinarian and treats pets with cancer and has always been involved in end-of-life care and helping families make those decisions. Welcome, Dr. V. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you could be here on the Doodle Kisses podcast. So I always start with um, wanting to know your personal dog story. Tell me about your history with dogs. Well, when I was a young girl, child, I was always wishing we could have a pet at home. And my mother and father had another dog for my brothers who were older. But then when the girls came along, you know, that dog had passed. And so I would take care of the stray dogs that I could find and offer to train dogs for our neighbors and give them baths. So I always had an affinity to dogs. And, um, one time we picked up a little stray dog that was itching. And um, I told my mom, we have to take him to the vet. And the doctor did a skin scraping and showed me under the microscope this ugly creature that I now know as a, a scabies mite. Oh. And they really cause itching. And I saw this ugly creature under the microscope. And I asked the doctor, how much would it cost to treat this dog? And he said, took his glasses off and looked down at me and he said $30 this oh, was a okay. long time ago and uh, I uh, I knew it was impossible to treat him and <clears throat> that's the moment I decided I would grow up and be a veterinarian and take care of my own pets oh I love that <laughs> that was my moment of deciding to take this 
busy track. Yeah. And as an adult, what kinds of dogs have you had? Well, I've had um, pretty much um, big dogs. My husband, uh, we've been married 37 years and we, he loves big dogs. So we've had a Bernese Mountain Dog, Great Pyrenees, a French Dog de Bordeaux. These are all dogs that are yeah. 100 pounds. Yeah. And, oh, I love big dogs. And now we have a young golden retriever. Mm-hmm. And they are number one dog for cancer yes. in the United States because they're popular. And then their genetic, we know that in their genetic makeup, they happen to have more cancer. The big golden retrievers will have males will have mm-hmm. cancer 67% of the time. And uh, the big females will have cancer 57% of the time. Mm-hmm. And that one in five golden retrievers will have a cancer in the called hemangiosarcoma, which usually appears in the spleen and that the spleen can rupture suddenly and the the dog is just down. It happens commonly in German shepherds as well. Very common type of cancer. And then one in eight golden retrievers will get lymphoma, which is cancer of the lymph glands. So it's so sad. Yes, it is. And then they get everything else too. Yeah. And they're the sweetest. Whenever I think, when I sit down and think about the personality of dog I want, I think of the golden retriever. But then when I, you know, when I remember its cancer rate, I just feel so hesitant. And I, you know, are there, is the research at a point where, you know, is it going in a direction where golden retrievers can start being bred in a better way? Or does it depend? Like if you have the top breeders, do they have lower cancer risk than just say mom and pop down the street who are breeding their golden retriever? Is there any difference? Conscientious breeders are trying very hard to not breed dogs that, that had cancer, but uh, often enough, they're breeding uh, dogs when they're younger. And so the cancers occur, you know, maybe four, five, six, seven years of age. Yeah. And uh, we don't know about uh, their uh, cancer until after the puppies are born. So it, it's tough. And then the Golden Retriever Club of America is committed. They have a 3,000 dog study, full lifetime study sponsored by the Morris Animal Foundation, where they're looking at the dogs and seeing if they can ever identify certain families of dogs that have more cancer. And if that's so, then the breeders are committed to trying to identify cancer genes and then hopefully breed dogs that don't have it uh, as much. Mm-hmm. So that would be ideal. Yeah. And when you say big golden retrievers, is there a higher rate on for those of bigger size versus yes, smaller yes. ones? The males that, have, uh, that are 90 pounds or more have more uh, frequency of cancer mm-hmm. that's been shown. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wonder what it is about their size that is connected to the genetics. Yeah, yeah. But is it like, yeah, it'd be interesting to see which genes turn on oh, for, yeah. when it comes to size. <laughs> that's, that's what uh, they're looking at right now. Yeah. Oh. Uh, there's schools uh, that have genetics departments, University of California, Davis, University of Minnesota, and many more are studying the genetics of dogs and uh, cancer related genes. So, uh, we will have some answers, I believe, in the next uh, five to 10 years so far as being able to select dogs that have less cancer in the specific breeds. Like the Bernese Mountain Dog has a very high rate of cancer. Mm-hmm. 
very high rate. And then, of course, all giant breed dogs have bone cancer uh, yeah. as the problem. That's so interesting. I Right now, I am fostering a puppy that is part Bernese Mountain Dog and pa- oh. part Poodle. He's a Bernadoodle. Oh, my goodness. And he's a 60-pound, 10-month-old, super cute and bouncy as can be. <laughs> So by the time this episode airs, he will probably be out of here and in his forever family. But Wonderful. right now he's actually just laying there. So we'll see if that lasts our whole <laughs> interview. So you had kind of promised yourself as a young child, I'm going to be a, a vet. At what point did you decide or show interest in end of life care? How did you end up you know, in this area of medicine? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I, I really didn't know if I would ever get into veterinary medicine. Uh, at the time I was applying, they were not accepting very many uh, young women applicants. Mm-hmm. And so this was in the late 60s. And so I always uh, thought my plan B would be to be a crop duster. <laughs> I would watch the airplanes go by. Uh, we might live right underneath the pathway for the L.A. airport. And then I wanted to feed the world. That was one of my you know, goals to being a veterinarian and it was agriculture. And I thought, well, maybe I can be a crop duster and kill all the locusts and all the bugs that ruin the fields and uh, crops for meat for humans. And so I studied entomology was a study, which is a study of insects. Mm -hmm. And then I studied toxicology, which is a study of of, uh, drugs and, uh, uh, you know, pesticides and anything that we use in the, you know, to, to treat diseases and to treat, you know, control populations of, of pests. And then I also took genetics. And uh, when I was finally accepted to veterinary school, when I was at UC Davis as a freshman in, in uh, vet school, and I heard my first lecture in cancer medicine from Dr. Gordon Thielen, who was a pioneer in the field, he'd already identified several viruses that cause cancer. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. The, the cancer cell is the biggest pest in the body. Mm-hmm. And I would like to be able to help pets with cancer by getting rid of these cancer cells. And so since I knew toxicology and I knew the concept of, you know, helping, that that's what I wanted to do, that I decided to go into oncology. And I asked Dr. Thielen if I could work in his laboratory. And he he accepted me. And uh, for the next three years, he actually put me through the ideal residency program that he is planning for the future for a cancer uh, oncology resident student that, uh, that they usually do those residencies after graduating from veterinary school and having a year internship than they do a residency in a specialty area. Well, he put me through the residency program while I was in the veterinary school. And I did that through my sophomore, junior and senior year. Wow, what a great connection. And so when I got out of veterinary school, uh, graduated, he said, Alice, go out there. I've taught you everything I know. Uh, He was on his way to do a sabbatical in London where he identified more subtypes of the feline leukemia virus that eventually created the vaccine from. He told me, go out there and practice oncology. So I did. I did. And then I basically was able to take my cancer patients all the way through. You know, my commitment to them was to uh, help them with uh, the cancer, to fight the cancer, and then to help them when they were in decline and end of life. And that's where I developed a a hospice philosophy. 
And uh, so that's how it started. It really was very early in my career. I thought it was just natural for me to take my cancer patients that I knew so well and help them through their decline towards death and help them have the best hospice possible. And eventually in the year 2000, I named it hospice, P-A-W-S-B-I-C-E, which uh, I think is really important to distinguish between human hospice and veterinary hospice because veterinarians are going to treat and take care of the quality of life of a pet when they're at end of life, but they will also be the one that helps that pet over the rainbow bridge Mm -hmm. when that pet's quality of life is so poor that life is no longer worth living. In human hospice, we don't, you know, we don't hasten death. So I wanted to make a distinguished, uh, to distinguish between veterinary hospice and human hospice so that people are not confused. Mm -hmm. How has end of life care changed since you started veterinary medicine? What have you noticed? Well, for animals, end-of-life care has dramatically changed because we have gained much more expertise in uh, management, for instance, of pain. Mm -hmm. We've identified pain better. We have better pain medications, combinations of pain medications, and uh, we really, really are able to relieve cancer pain in most of our patients and, uh, you know, arthritis arthritis pain, uh, pain that can really be, you know, crippling for animals. Um, and we also know how to help animals that have neurological decline. Uh, people are now getting a cart for their dogs if their back legs don't work. And uh, people are able to put their failing pet in a harness and, you know, kind of lift them a bit to help them walk better. Mm-hmm. We have so many things for comfort care now in hospice for animals, softer bedding. We know to prevent the uh, wounds that can occur when a pet's immobile. Uh, they can get, you know, what we call bed sores mm-hmm. uh, or decubitus, and we know how to treat those. And we treat hydration issues. You know, the quality of life scale has got five H's, uh, and we want to control the five H's mean uh, no hurt, no hunger, no hydration issues. Hygiene is very important and uh, happiness. And uh, it's very important to make sure that the pet at end of life does have happiness because without that, without the two-way exchange of the human-animal bond love, the pet's life is really very um, sad because they're, they're, they're really there because, you know, of the love relationship. So I believe happiness is very important. And then the two M's in the HUM uh, quality of life scale, I've called Mm -hmm. it the HUM quality of life scale, which is five H's and two M's. And um, it's real easy to remember those five H's we just went through. Uh, But the two M's are mobility and more good days than bad days. And the mobility issue is really variable when it comes to the size of the animal, because like small, small dogs and cats are, if they can't move around or walk, it's pretty easy for people to carry them and to move them from one place to the next in the home. But if you've got a giant dog with bone cancer and he can't mm-hmm. walk and he's got weak back legs or had, you know, both knees operated on before the cancer appeared in the front leg, we, we have big, big problems. And so often enough, the size of the animal is the 
limiting factor and also the ability of the family to care for the pet based upon the pet size. And then, of course, if we live upstairs and we have a big dog with bone cancer and you can't lift him upstairs, you know, it's very tough. So these are the considerations. And then um, uh, finally, with uh, more good days than bad days, you know, we know the psyche of animals now. We, We know that they don't plan for the future. You know, they're not trying to live for their their you know their daughter's graduation or their son's wedding you know they just live in the moment mm-hmm. and so if every moment is full of pain and uh starvation you know decline frustration the pet the animal they start to get very very depressed and frustrated and um uh, and that's you know one of the signs that i want people to look at to help them make the decision uh, the final decision to call their veterinarian or to go in for um, help uh, and helping that pet cross over to the Rainbow Bridge. And then also we can have veterinarians come to the home. And so I, I wanted to put this philosophy out there is that when we decided to domesticate animals, dogs and cats are specifically talking about right now, but all of them gave up the uh, uh, freedom to go under a bush when it's their time to die. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know, the natural thing. You know, they would go under the bush and then Mother Nature, in her wisdom, uh, Mother Nature has a quick hand. There is no prolonged lingering at death. Uh, there's no, you know, days and days of, of uh, decline. What happens is when the animal goes under a bush in nature, Uh, Either the elements, uh, which are, you know, cold and heat and dehydration and uh, predation, you know, animals that will eat the frail and the young and the weak and the old. So that animal then becomes part of the food chain. So that's Mother Nature's quick hand. And there is no prolonged dying phase. But since we adopted animals, since we domesticated them and we keep them, they can die very, very long with a long, prolonged death. And I think that that is hard on the pet, hard on the family. And I personally feel that when we adopt an animal, we should, we're all taking up the ancient contract of the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. And the good shepherd always takes his animals to the best feeding places and would make sure that they did not suffer. And so when our pet is at the end of life and in decline, we can be the responsible good shepherd. It's our responsibility to take them and put them under the bush, figuratively speaking, when it's their time to die. So they don't have a prolonged, relentless suffering at the end of life. And I don't want them to suffer to death. We None of us want that. Right. So if we, if we, show the responsibility, you know, we take on our shoulders as the good shepherd and we present our pet to the veterinarian who will help us uh, to help that pet go over the bridge. And I like to use the word escorting, mm-hmm. helping, transitioning, because this is natural. The, the, the pet is dying. And what we're doing, the veterinarian is often feeling sad with the family members and I'm trying to help the veterinarians feel more like they are Mother Nature's helping hand, that they're facilitating a natural process. The pet is dying, 
and it's time for him to go under the bush. But since we're all domesticated, we're going to have the Good Shepherd family members, the pet parents, take the pet to the vet or have the vet come to the home. And the veterinarian can oversee and help that pet transition over the Rainbow Bridge as Mother Nature's helping hand. And so both sides of the pet, you know, or I'd say both sides of the leash, both sides of the exam table, both sides, the owners of the pet, you know, the pet parents, the, the givers, the pet carers would feel less angst if they knew that they were being responsible at end of life by helping that pet and escorting them peacefully and painlessly over the bridge. And the veterinarian would feel less angst if they felt that their role is Mother Nature's helping hand instead of feeling like the one that ended that pet's life, you know. So I think that we have lots of room to help the heart and a heartache at the end of life with looking at it and rethinking our roles. Right. It sounds it sounds good in my brain, but even listening to this brings makes me emotional. Well, of <laughs> um, course, I'm thinking of yeah, I'm thinking of our Roscoe who we said goodbye to. We helped escort um over the bridge early this January. And he I don't think he was there mentally anymore on his last day, to be honest. I don't I don't think he was. That means present. you probably pick the right time. You yeah, know, yeah. you never know. And I'm, I'm, I was sad because I really wanted his vet to be there, but she didn't have office days on that day, and we didn't want to wait anymore. So sure. we did have, we did have a vet come to the house, and Good. I was surprised that my children and I, I joined us in bawling our eyes out. And even, I think, oh yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump, jump backwards um and we i've also put down our old border collie years ago and she had bone cancer and my my husband had had her long before he even knew me and he could just tell i think i think sometimes as owners we can kind of tell but it's still heart-wrenching to make that decision and you still second guess yourself in the moment well but if we if we realize that mother nature you know has a quick hand when animals become frail, yeah, it's it doesn't make it less heart wrenching or sad, but then we can feel like we're not playing the rod when we're making the final decision to say, I sent my pet to the veterinarian for the help, help him transition because mm-hmm. he is dying. And in the wild and in, in nature, this wouldn't have been so prolonged. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. I know a lot of people say they want their pet to die a natural death, which means unassisted. 
Right. But I think that that term, that term natural death, I'd like to help the public change that concept because mm-hmm. everybody thinks that things that are natural are okay. And it is not okay, in my personal opinion, to have a long, drawn-out death. Mm-hmm. When in Mother Nature's world, it wouldn't have been long and drawn out. But in a captive world, you know, our animals are kept. And so we protect them from the, the, the elements. And so their death can be very long and very frustrating with relentless pain and that people don't perceive because the pet's sort of semi-conscious. They're, they're really slowed down. And I think that there's a lot of suffering that goes on that people say it's natural, quote unquote, when it isn't. And so I wanted to rename that, that approach uh, as uh, to unassisted death or prolonged death. And I think people would understand more what they're doing when they make the decision not to ask the veterinarian to help their pet transition over the bridge when the pet's quality of life is just so poor Mm -hmm. that life is no longer worth living for the pet. Right, right. So this quality of life um, tool, assessment tool, is available online, and I'm going to put a link to that along with a link to Paw Spice in our show notes so that people can look it up. Right, um, and I pronounce it, I love the pronunciation Paw Spice, but it's really when I, when I originated the term, it was Pospice. That's right. To rhyme, to rhyme with hospice, but uh-huh. I love the Paw Spice because it's easy to spell. <laughs> Right. And, uh, everybody can download the quality of life scale and some articles on end of life mm-hmm. and rethinking euthanasia. This concept that I just proposed, I wrote that article a year ago and I don't have the mother nature's helping hand concept for the veterinarian part. But the, the whole idea is that the veterinarian should feel more like they're officiating a beautiful ceremony of transition. That is, you know, more uh, something that we're not feeling, you know, negative feelings about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the veterinarian and the vet tech or assistant that came, they were excellent. They were so They're wonderful. They explained everything in advance and were spoke gently and slowly and took their time and made sure we were ready and so kind, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's kindness and everyone who's been present at a, a, a kind and peaceful and painless passing with the help of euthanasia understands that it's really a beautiful way to go and that um, we could help our animals avoid relentless suffering and uh, with that final gift of love and that's to help them transition and escort them over to the bridge where they can be free of the pain and suffering and cancer and you know organ failure that they we're dying from. So we are able to liberate our pets from that last part, which is really artificial because it's prolonged. And that's what I want to do is help the public stop calling, you know, the thing natural death when it's really prolonged death if they don't have some help. I mean, a lot of dogs and cats will pass away on their own. Mm-hmm. And it's it doesn't seem prolonged because they just died in their sleep easily. They weren't suffering before. So I'm always happy when that happens, but that's generally not the case. It's generally a prolonged wait. And I'm I'm hoping that we can help families uh, make those decisions sooner than they have been with that spirit of the Good Shepherd. 
the responsibility. Like yeah. Now, is it okay if we talk a little bit about some of the quality of life specifics? Um, I'm wondering about yes. pain. Um, some animals hide their pain so well. How how do we tell if our animal is in pain in their senior years? Well, the the first and most important thing is to know is that many people cannot tell. And that's why they need to take their vet, their pet to a veterinarian to get x-rays, to see if the joints, see how much arthritis is in the joint, like if they're stiff and can't walk well, see if they have knee problems, disc problems, neck problems, you know. Um, so if we identify something on the body, uh, painful muscles, then we, we can confirm that there is pain. But many people can't tell. The, mm -hmm. the pet does show signs but they are not interpreted properly. I've had some people with a dog that's had bone cancer on the leg and he's lifting the leg up. He's not walking on the leg, but he's wagging his tail. <laughs> and the family said, he's not in pain. Look at him. And I go like, why do you think he has his leg up? That's because they have terrible pain. So we are not really good experts at reading pain, even though there's lots of pain scales and ways to detect pain. Uh, we have to know we're vulnerable and that our animals have suffered a lot because we don't understand pain. For instance, bad teeth. About one in four of older animals, uh, dogs and cats, have terrible, infected, loose, painful teeth. And the families don't realize it. So it's really common. Pain, unrecognized pain is very common. It's unfortunately even worse for cats. Because when cats have pain, they're quiet. They just sort of, you know, lay there and kind of be, they're still. Mm -hmm. Whereas often dog, you know, he'll lift his leg up. They'll be stiff. Uh, they'll show you that they have pain. They'll cry. But mm -hmm. so often cats don't. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to know about pain. But the worst pain of all uh, is the pain of not being able to breathe properly. And that's on my quality of life scale listed as a top concern. Mm -hmm. If an animal has cancer in the lungs or heart failure where there's water in the chest cavity and they cannot breathe properly, that is among the about the top worst pain that people can describe. Like people who smoke cigarettes who finally get cancer and COPD and emphysema in their lungs and they can't breathe. They are in a lot of anxiety and pain. And they need mm -hmm. oxygen. And the same thing for our pets. So we, I recommend if a pet has an abnormal breathing pattern, immediately go to the veterinarian, get chest x-rays, find out what's going on. Uh, may, they may need an ultrasound of the chest and the heart to determine what's going on and the cause of the trouble of breathing. But if they cannot breathe properly after medical care, that is the uh, important reason to make the final decision for the gift of euthanasia to relieve them from that horrible pain of not being able to breathe properly. Yeah. What about, um, yeah, pain is so hard. And that image you put in my head of the dog lifting his leg and wagging his tail, I'm like, no human would ever do that. <laughs> you know, right. that's we the beauty of dogs is that they can sort of just like, yes, this hurts. And I'm super happy to see you. <laughs> yeah, They give us mixed messages. And that's why we can't really determine if they're painful and, and, you know, we may need the help of a veterinarian, a professional and the x-rays diagnostics. Yeah. Uh, 
But I think that we should always err in the part of saying, yes, this hurts. If I had bone cancer in my leg, Mm -hmm. it hurts a lot. If I had a tumor in my liver, uh, it hurts. And so we we know that we need to presume uh, that a pet is hurting. And then we treat them with pain medications. That preemptively means let's try one or two weeks of pain medication. Uh, see if he feels better, does better, eats more, more active. And of course, we have to make sure the pain medication that we offer does not have, uh, a co- does not cause the pet sedation or drowsiness. So we have to find the right medication. And sometimes people say, oh, I took him off of it because he was drowsy. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is work with the veterinarian to find the right medication for the pet. One thing I never understood, and I, I, I imagine there's good reasons, but um, if a dog is getting up there in age and probably doesn't have a long time left to live and you just want pain management, why is it still necessary to do so much lab work in order to check liver? Because I feel like if I know my dog has less than six months, I don't care what's happening with their liver. I just want their pain managed and I don't want to have to draw blood and check their liver and see because they're not going to have that much longer left. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yes. In fact, it depends upon your goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people uh, treat their pets the way they would treat their family members. And older family members, you know, there's there's many diseases on top of of the, a painful one, and so the doctor is trained to look at all the troubles. You know, the we call them comorbidities. If, right. if they have kidney failure on top of, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, intestinal problems or liver disease, it might make the difference between the medications that are selected. So doctors are always going to ask you your permission mm-hmm. to do a, a, a overall assessment of the patient, which would include x-rays and blood tests and, and many times a urine sample and an abdominal ultrasound and find out who we're treating, what we're doing, you know, who's getting this pain medication. Uh, but if you decide, no, that's, that's over my budget, oh, I don't have the interest in, you know, in knowing how the liver function is or kidney function, then you just let your doctor know that. And the doctors are accustomed to working with people who have financial constraints or have uh, less interest in finding out the details. Yeah. And, uh, and it, don't be ashamed. You know, you just have to say, this is how I feel. And at end of life, please treat my dog with symptomatic treatment. And veterinarians are very, very accustomed to doing that. Yeah, certainly I would want testing for a lot of cases. I think just sometimes when you know that it's it's close to the end, it may not matter as much whether a medication is hard on the kidneys or liver. Let's see. So you mentioned that one of the reasons in our previous conversation, and, and tell me if I remember correctly, that one of the big reasons that veterinarians have a high suicide rate is because of their having to be involved in euthanasia. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Not only in euthanasia, but in um, Mm decision-making because of, you know, like you said, a family that comes in where they love their dog or their cat, but they don't have money to Mm -hmm. finance even 
you know, a diagnostic thing to find out what's really wrong or maybe a broken leg. Maybe a, a dog has, you know, been hit by a car and the family cannot afford to uh, fix the fracture. Mm-hmm. This is also heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. On top of that, often enough, the same doctor is asked to give that pet euthanasia. And it could have been a, you know, a, a patient that they could have helped mm-hmm. if the circumstances were other than, you know, what was restricting the, 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 the pet's, uh, you know, successful treatment. So euthanasia can be not just compassionate euthanasia, which we talked about for end of life animals, which I'm hoping that doctors will feel less heartbroken over. But if the veterinarian understands that they are witnessing, you know, we are witness to such uh, sad situations uh, that that is part of our role is to help alleviate the suffering on both sides, the animal suffering, the the family suffering, uh, and that euthanasia is often the only option that would be best. Or uh, many times doctors will take a pet and say, if you can't afford to fix these two broken legs, you know, maybe we can find a, 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 a sponsor. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, that, that's a tremendous uh, a way that the, the animal can get help. And veterinarians are saints. So many of them are, are so compassionate that they will do their best to help. But often they get blamed. The high suicide rate is is also there because the public often comes in demanding mm-hmm. uh, that the veterinarian finance and pay for those two broken legs, even though the family did not get a health insurance policy for their pet. They did not save any money to to uh, be able to finance a situation that came up suddenly like this that could be expensive. And they're burden sharing. They feel a burden, but they want to share it with the doctor. And they're saying, well, obviously you're here just for the money. You don't love animals. (laughs) And that's that's what doctors hear every day. Every day they get abuse from people who did not prepare to be financially responsible for their pet. Or they are not understanding disease processes like so often. You know, like we're saying, dogs and cats don't show their pain. Well, you might take your pet in because you noticed the breathing was a problem and the doctor shows you the x-ray and it's terminal cancer. And what happens is people feel so guilty and upset. Well, what do they do? They shoot the messenger and they're angry at the doctor and they want a second opinion. They're, you know, it's, it's amazing how much abuse the public has put on veterinarians. And I would like everyone who's listening today to understand that this is not the way to go with veterinarians. We are kind, generous, loving people who want to help animals and help the family. But we also have uh, to pay rent. Uh, We've got uh, payroll for the staff. We've got medications. We've got equipment like x-ray machines, ultrasounds, and all the, you know, blood work machines that we have to have to help animals. And we have fees. And you cannot go into a grocery store and buy an apple without paying for it. But people somehow think the veterinarian should finance their pets. 
if they are not able to do it. And so that's a lot of abuse. There's so many options today, too. Um, there's care credit. There's there's rescue. You know, rescue will often take in a dog that needs care if that's the only option. I can't even imagine being a veterinarian in those cases where a dog is perfectly healthy and can be fixed. Do veterinarians ever say, no, no, I'm sorry, I can't put this dog down. <laughs> this is a terrible reason. Yeah, they, 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 they often always do. Uh-huh. But, but with their compassion, if they know a dog is going to, you know, belong, is belonging to someone who's obviously not responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, we see everything. We see all kinds of pet owners, you know, that yeah. are not responsible. Uh, we often think that it might be best to help that pet over the bridge rather than face uh, that person looking for other options. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, almost every veterinarian has options for a low cost clinic, for uh, for um, uh, nonprofit organizations that will help them finance their pets uh, situation. Um, and we we try really hard to give people options. We work with them with lower cost, you know, ways to help the pet, you know, mm-hmm. bypass a blood test, uh, put the leg in a, a splint and see if they can be. Uh, you know, kept quiet for six or eight weeks and if they can't fix a fracture, can't, you know, afford a fracture surgery. So veterinarians are often compromising and treating pets with um, a second or third level of medicine to compromise and help. And so the, the veterinarian is given so many dilemmas on a daily basis. It, it is no, little wonder why they come home and they're upset and sad and and all they need is one more heartbreaking problem. Maybe they have a child with disability or going through a divorce or parents that are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you add, you know, an abusive person that put them on Yelp over <sighs> over no really good cause, but that yeah. hurt the doctor's reputation. These are situations that are heart wrenching for the doctors. And uh, we're trying our best to help doctors understand how to cope with this um, rough, stressful career and look at the positive. But so often, one negative Yelp outweighs 100 thank you cards. And I'm always trying to tell the doctors, keep all your thank you cards and and just pull them out when someone gives you a hard time. Mm Yeah, oh, and don't yeah. take those people. Don't take those people personally, because what happens is the doctor, you know, when they call a doctor mean or mercenary, you know, they put that in their heart and they they wear that yeah. very sadly. And, and we're trying to help doctors say, you know, these things sticks and stones can hurt your bones, but words should never hurt you. <sighs> and we're trying to help doctors learn how to cope with criticism that we know is just out of anger or frustration from pet owners who are trying to what we call burden share when they're not Mm -hmm. taking care of their own burden and they want the veterinarian to take over, you know, for free, you know. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds stressful. I'm, I'm a healthcare professional too. And I, you know, every now and then there's somebody who's upset about something, but I can't imagine having to take care of innocent animals and all the heartache 
And well, I, I want mean, you to imagine it. And I want everyone who's listening today to imagine. And then when you see your veterinarian the next time, you thank them for what they're doing. Uh, mm. Bring them flowers, uh, give them cookies, and tell them that you are so sorry that some of the public is so ruthless and nasty that they have dragged down the morale of the veterinarian and the staff. I mean, they'll treat the technicians and nurses and front desk people the same way. There are, some people are just so difficult and hard on the staff. Mm-hmm. I think our listeners are genuinely probably some of the best <laughs> customers. The best. But oh, yeah. as if you're listening and you love your vet or you're happy about something they've done, send them a card. I think I love that because I bet they don't get happy cards very often and thankful cards. So I want to jump to, I want to jump to talking about incontinence real quick. I know that's something that can happen to the older dog and can be messy and difficult to deal with. What, what are your suggestions for that? If that well, first of all, are we talking about urinary incontinence or fecal incontinence? Well, we've got about 10 minutes left, so you could maybe just briefly touch on both. Okay, uh, urinary incontinence can occur uh, in female dogs uh, most commonly um, because they have had little estrogen in their system since they were, uh, uh, you know, when, when the ovaries were removed. Mm-hmm. And estrogen plays a role in um, how the sphincter and the bladder works. So sometimes it can be treated very nicely with replacement treatment or other medications that make the sphincter uh, have more ability to close. Mm -hmm. So that's one kind of incontinence. And then the other kind of incontinence is when urine is just leaking from either a male dog or a female dog, and uh, you notice it in their bed when they've been sleeping. And that's a problem. And, And definitely, I would take my pet to the veterinarian. I recommend that and get a urinalysis to see if there's an infection. Uh, and also a neurological examination to see if the pet has uh, neurological issues. Uh, many times when incontinence occurs in an older male dog, it is difficult to, to uh, help them. But there are certain procedures that can be done that can help. And then ultimately, if it's unable to, you know, if like a urinary tract infection is not discovered and if the that the dog is not given antibiotics and if there's not a response and if the incontinence continues, um, I often recommend that we put the diapers on the mm-hmm. pet so that it's more manageable. And I like newborn diapers. And then there are also some really wonderful pet diapers that are now available that fit different, you know, small, medium and large breed dogs. And you can put an extra pad uh, if you have a dog with large volume urine, you can put an extra like a couple of Kotex pads right where the the uh, orifices are, you know, and that would help. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, incontinence is a problem with urine. And then uh, as, as some pets get older, um, especially dogs, when they have a condition called degenerative uh, myelopathy, that's a big term, but it means that the back legs there's nerves that the brain doesn't know where the feet are the back feet and their tail quits wagging Mm -hmm. and then when they get worse the anus uh, loses its tone its muscular tone and stool starts to just drop 
from the anus as the dog is walking. And this might happen before they lose urine uh, continence mm -hmm. uh, with degenerative myelopathy. And uh, very often we recommend the diapers or just make sure that the pet is kept in a locations that have uh, surfaces, you know, like hardwood floors or tile floor where they're not going to be uh, soiling carpets as much. But that's a problem. Fecal yeah. incontinence. Yeah. And then if they have diarrhea, it's even worse. I can imagine. I ran across social media across this page of a woman who has a small dog. I feel like it was a some kind of dachshund. Um, and he had either paralysis or something else going on. He was younger and she had this whole ec um, exercise pen set up with blankets and he had these two layers of diaper and then a cover and she would come home and she showed like this sped up video of her changing her dog's diaper. And she was so, I was so impressed with her just like, yes, this is just what I do and it's quick and easy and you know, not a big deal. This wasn't yes. an older dog, but um, it was kind of interesting to watch and see her process. And you name the breed, the dog that has commonly uh, has disc protrusion, uh, the doxies, uh, <clears throat> you know, their long back and little uh -huh. tiny short legs. <clears throat> they can uh, have a herniated disc and they could be paralyzed from wherever the disc injury is all the way down. Oh, <clears throat> and man. they can be quite young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she adapted to it. That's yeah, wonderful. She but, but if it's a big dog, you can't, you have more trouble. Right, right. The size for end of life care and hospice care is really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just saw something in the you know in the news recently about parents that have children that are disabled that they might be able to slow down the growth of the child so they won't turn into an adult and be a hundred and fifty pound, a hundred and eighty pound uh, patient hmm. that the parents no longer can take care of. Hmm, and that's a very interesting option. Yeah, it was a, a surprise to me that that is now an option. But but so often uh, that is the reason why parents have to give up a child is when they get to be 15 or 16, they're too big and they can no longer care for them. But we have that problem with giant breed dogs. They're 100, 130, 150, 160 pounds. The Mastiff right next door to me was 239 pounds. Oh my, that's, I love big dogs so much, but after, after my last big dog and as his back legs got weaker, I'm not getting stronger. <laughs> so it was, I, yeah, I might not be able to go that big anymore. <laughs> yeah, I had a hundred pound great Pyrenees who had degenerative myelopathy and it took oh. her 18 months for her back legs to be very clumsy and, you know, poor function to where she really was unable to walk and it was starting to affect her front legs. But I was able to get her out. She loved going for a walk and I would lift her up by her tail. She didn't like having a cart. She did not mm. want a cart. But if I helped her get her legs underneath her, she was fine. And if I just held her tail, we could walk out front, sniff the bushes and come back. And she was so happy to come and go. Oh, we nice. did that eight or nine times a day. And that keeps them from being bored. And remember, part of that happiness thing is is to make sure that they are not bored and and lonely and frustrated, that yeah. they have happiness. They get to experience sniffing, <laughs> sniffing the world. Uh, well, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think would be important for us to touch on? A lot of people with older and immobile pets will take them in a wagon. I see more and more buggies and wagons for dogs and cats. 
people will take them out and the animal is having a great time sniffing everything and meeting people. And it's wonderful to see that mm-hmm. at end of life. Yeah. This was a, a challenging episode only because the topic is like still, it felt raw still to me. I didn't think it would, you know, get to know that quality of life scale. Very important. Yeah. yeah get to know it. I think. I think a lot of pet owners who are really connected to their pet, they have a little bit of a sixth sense sometimes, you know, you kind of can tell when, when things are downhill enough or about to go there. But I think it's good to be aware of that scale. And it sounds like there's a lot of meds and treatments and ways to get around some of the challenging areas. Lots of expertise. Just go to the veterinarian, ask your veterinarian for end of life care and help palliative care the word palliative i love because it has the word pal in it we're helping our pal we're making things better mm-hmm. and we can also do that if they have terminal cancer i have some cancer patients that i didn't think would live two or three weeks or two or three months and they lived one year two years it's, it can be amazing yeah. so we actually can give palliative cancer medicine along with palliative care which is to help relieve the symptoms and to improve the situation for pets to increase their quality of life at the end of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wish we had more time to talk about cancer. We might have to do that in the future, but, um, and I guess the last thing is just to, you know, remember that you want a easy transition and you want to do it at a time where it's not going to be hard on the dog. You don't want to push them. Um, and if you have a vet you love, let them know. <laughs> right. Let them give them a heads up. And if you have a house call doctor that's coming, give them a heads up. Let them know a week or two before you think the time is coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. V. Thank you for being on the Doodle Kisses podcast. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.